0: Will you pray for breath? Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we glorify you and thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you so much that we get to gather here in your name, most importantly to hear from you. Now, as your servant is about to speak to so us, I pray that Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, may speak in our hearts and write your way and transform us. Please help us to be submissive to what we're about to hear now. In Jesus Christ, out of love and reverence for a name, obey in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lucky. Thanks, James. Good evening, everyone. My name is Brad, one of the pastors here, and we are in a series called Romans. At the moment, we've been doing this for quite some time, so if you're joining us for the first time tonight, you're picking up towards the end of our series in Romans, you can find the rest on our website if you'd like, though. And uh, tonight, we have a slightly unique circumstance, uh, because last week, you might remember, we were in Romans 13, and tonight, we're in Romans 15, and next week, we're going to be in Romans 14. And that's because we thought that Romans is actually a really easy book to understand. And so we wanted to, you know, help you guys enjoy it a little bit more and uh, jump around a little bit. I feel like this mic is going in and out. Is it not? Okay, good. Right. So uh, what's actually happened is, unfortunately, some of you might know, Roland managed to injure himself surfing. And uh, so he's been a little bit man down this week. And so uh, he's going to pick up his message next week. And I'm going to do this week's for him. And... uh, so that's why we, we're jumping around a little bit, but we're actually speaking about the same thing. So if you go through the book of Romans and you get to Romans chapter 14, you'll find what Paul does from the beginning of Romans 14 through to halfway through Romans 15 is he picks up this one particular issue, and uh, he begins to deal with it, and he, there's a problem that's going on in the church, and we'll sketch that in a bit of a moment, and then he begins to address it, and, uh, and in it, as his solution, he, there's a call for, for us as God's people to live in unity, what what you'll see if you begin to read Romans 14, what you'll see when Roland takes you through Romans 14 next week, is that Paul says, you know what, there are two groups of Christians that existed in the Roman church. And in this particular instance, he categorizes them as the strong and the weak, the strong brother and the weak brother. And they're distinguished by three different activities the, the strong, those who you call strong, they, they would eat different foods. So they felt like they could eat any kind of food. No food was off limits, and they could just enjoy whatever they wanted to eat. They had discovered the wonders of the gospel, and that bacon was a thing, and they wanted to, to enjoy that as Christians, right? And then in uh, Romans 14 verse 2, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, it says, the weak ate only vegetables. <laughs> it's not exactly what it means, but it's very convenient that it's there. Right? But one of the distinctions between these two groups is that those who were categorized as strong thought they were able to, with freedom, eat everything that was around, and those who were weaker in their conscience felt that like there were some things that they couldn't eat, and so in particular they didn't eat some meat. Right? One of the other things that, that characterized these two groups is that the, the weaker brothers and sisters, they would observe special days right, special days of fasting, special days of particular holiness, they saw some days as more sacred and holy than other days, whereas those that Paul calls as the stronger believers, they saw all days as equally important together. And then finally, there's a distinction between them is that those who were the stronger believers felt the freedom to drink some wine as a part of their diet amongst the bacon. Right? And those who were categorized as the weaker believers felt that they needed to abstain from the drinking of wine. So those are three distinctions that you'll find as you go through Romans chapter 14 between these two different groups and how they practice their life together. We don't know exactly who these groups are, but in light of the situation in the Roman church, we can make some reasonably good guesses. And you might remember a couple of weeks ago, I told you that there was there was a distinction in the Roman church between those who had come to faith from a Jewish background and those who had come to faith from a non-Jewish background or a Gentile background. Uh, what seems likely is that we're what Paul calls here the strong believers, they're largely probably Gentile believers. They're believers who have come to faith without the, if I can use the word baggage in inverted commas, of the Jewish faith. So... Those who had been Jewish and come to Christ had come up observing the wholeness and the completeness of the Jewish law in order to be righteous before God, which meant they had to abstain from a lot of food, including bacon, right? They had to observe special fasting days and special feasts before the Lord. They They had to respect the Sabbath and keep it holy. All of the laws that were found in the Old Testament, all 613 of them, the righteous Jew needed to keep, right? And so when some of these believers when some of these Jews became believers they carried through some of these practices into their Christian life because that was how they had always understood to honor God right they're most likely who Paul refers to as the weaker brother in Romans 14 and Roland will explain to you a little bit why that is next week the ones that Paul refers to as the stronger brother are probably those Gentile believers, those non-Jewish people that came to faith in Jesus and they didn't carry any of the any of the observances that existed in the Jewish faith. So for them, there was never any food that was off limits. They could just eat whatever they wanted. And there was no particular day that was more holy than another day. There was no grape juice that was more enjoyable than any other grape. They could do what they wanted. And now they've come to Christ and they've been told that there's liberty in Christ for them to continue in these practices. And so these two groups, are that's probably how they're formed, and, and Paul categorizes them as weaker or stronger because of their belief in the amount of liberty they have to engage in certain issues. Right? The strong believe that they had the liberty to live without some of the, these particular restrictions, those that Paul calls weaker They believed that those things were godly and necessary, and they had carried them through from the Old Testament, and they needed to continue to live them out. And that, as you can imagine, caused a bit of a strain in the relationships in the church. Particularly, what you might not know about the Roman church is that it was probably started with Jewish believers, and then Emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome for a period of time, which included all the Jewish Christians. And so the small minority of believers who were left, who were Gentile, they continued the in the church. They grew the church for five years, and then all the Jews came back, and now you've got two sets of believers from two very different cultural backgrounds, right? And these things that we're beginning to see here in Romans 14, which Roland will take you through next week, right, were probably things that began to be points of contention in the early church and inside the Roman church. Now, one of the things that that we see as you look at this particular description. And again, Rolls is going to unpack this a bit more, but we need to just, we need to get a, a broad level understanding of what was going on. That Paul says there are, there are two different types of sin that exist, particularly in, that existed in the Roman church, and there are other categories for sin that you will find if you go through the New Testament, right? But, but Paul speaks here about two types of sin, and, and the kind of sins that we talk about as being open-handed and closed-handed issues, now, what I mean by that is, Paul says, there are some kinds of sin where, where God has said something absolutely to transgress that or to violate that is absolutely sin. There is no negotiation about that. We're not there yet, Aaron. You can stay on the first slide, right? Or you can go, that's fine. All right. The, if you if you transgress a rule that God has set in place, for instance, God said, do not steal. Right? That is an absolute rule that God has given. It's, it's not... There's no freedom that you have. You can't say, I'm free in Christ to just steal from someone because, you know, Jesus set me free. That's not what it means. That's not how it operates. God has set something and cast it in stone. It is is a, a, yeah, the truth of God. And he defines what is righteous and what is sin. But Paul says there is a different type of sin where God hasn't said something specifically where you can still be in a place of sin. And that's where your conscience or your, your kind of moral compass in your mind tells you what you should or shouldn't be doing, and you choose to violate that conscience. If you do that, Paul says you're actually sinning, and you need to not do that. Right? And so that's, that's the kind of issue that Paul now begins to address in Romans 14 and 15. He says these observances that the weaker believers are carrying into their Christian life, They are not absolute laws of God. There are now now things that you feel is right for you to do in light of how you understand your relationship with God. But actually the truth is there is freedom in Christ from these things. But because your conscience calls you to obey them, then for you to not do that would be sinful. Does that make sense? Okay, I hope so. If it doesn't, hopefully Roland will do a better job next week, right? Because that's the primary part of what he's going to be talking about. That idea is what undergirds this section in Romans 14 and 15. Paul is addressing these freedoms that the believers in Rome were engaged in and engaged in in different ways. Some were avoiding and some were engaging. And he begins to address how they should work that out together as a body in order to be united for God. And that's why I've called my message tonight, Living for Unity. Because that's Paul's desire for the church, that they would live for one another and honor one another in the way in which they conducted their lives, All right? And so he begins to unpack this in four different sections, and now you can put that up for us, Aaron, All right? And, uh, and so this is what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at the bottom part, and next week, Roland is going to take us into the, into the top part. So Paul begins in the beginning of chapter 14, and he speaks to both the stronger brother and the weaker brother, and he says what you need to recognize is as you're engaging in these areas of open-handed issues, you need to not condemn one another in the way that you engage together. All right? That's the first port And then he moves away from addressing both groups, and he begins to just address those who are considered the strong, those who believe they have the liberty to engage in these things. And he says, when you do that, you need to recognize the consequences of your actions towards your brothers and sisters in the Lord. So don't harm your brothers and sisters by the way in which you enjoy and engage in the freedom that you have in Christ. Be aware of those around you. Then he continues his argument into Romans 15, the part that we'll pick up just now. And he says, again, he speaks to those who he calls the stronger believer, those who operate with the freedom to do what they believe they are free to do in Christ. And he says, you need to not just not judge one another, you need to not just not harm your brother, but you actually need to learn to tolerate your brother's belief or your sister's belief. That needs to become a part of how you live your life as a Christian. And then he rounds out the whole section. In, you know, like classic Pauline chiasm, right, which is a thing. But he rounds out the section by going back to talking to both groups again. So he started with the strong and the weak, did a double on the strong because they've got more to do, and then he comes back to both of them, and he says, now you need to learn to accept one another, to love one another, to embrace one another. And the heart of this chapter and a half of Scripture is, that, is this, that we need to do our very best to sacrifice what we don't need to hold on to in order to maintain unity in the body of Christ. That's the heart of what Paul is speaking about. So, so now that hopefully you've seen, I've set the scene a little bit, and maybe what we're going to do now is going to make sense in light of what Paul is doing, we're going to we're going step into those last two, right, from 15, one to chapter, to verse 13. And, and I want to invite us to, to allow God's Word to begin to shape us as a community tonight, to, to move us and to mold us towards unity, to, to, towards honoring one another. Because as we do that, we bring God glory. So let's read together from Romans chapter 15. And If you want to turn there in your Bibles or um, navigate there on your phones, that would be really fantastic because as we continue to, to go through, it will be helpful for you to have it with you. Paul, uh, Paul writes this, Romans chapter 15 from 1 to 13. He says, Those of us who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now accept one another, Then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. For as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's the word of God that's got its call for us this evening. And perhaps you notice as we as we read through or perhaps you remember from the little breakdown before we read through the that there are two major divisions that Paul makes in these 13 verses which are which are marked by the key what we call imperatives or commands that Paul gives inside the this passage of scripture. And so he makes each command and then he substantiates it with a theological reason. And then after he substantiated it, he then prays for the Roman church that they would be able to do it. And these, these commands basically break the text in half from verses 1 to 6 and then from 7 to 13. And we're going to look at them one by one and unpack them a little bit and trust that God will begin to give us the grace and mold us and shape us to begin to live them out and embody them with one another. So here's the first imperative. We who are weak ought to bear with the failing. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. So here he is. He says, if you are strong, and I want you to notice that Paul includes himself in this opening description, right, he considers himself in that category, that camp of those who are the stronger believers. He says, do your best to bear with or to empathize or to accept or to patiently sustain the failings, in other words, the theologically misplaced convictions of the weak. In addition, he says, "Do not, don't seek to please yourself." I mean, we could we could kind of stop right there. That you know, that's like one of those real awkward commands that you find in scripture. Right? Uh, oh, okay. Um, right. Actually, instead of pleasing yourself, seek to please your neighbour. Paul says, your brother, your sister in Christ, shape your life around them. Shape your life around their concerns. Seek first what is best for them so that you would be able to build them up. I don't know for you if that's like a little bit hard to swallow. I don't know if it raises questions in you, like, well, how far do you expect me to go, Paul? Uh, how much do you want me to give up? I I know I know I've really battled with this at times. And as I was as I was preparing and reading and, and thinking about this, I think I think God dropped a little perspective in my heart. And you know this this freedom that we love and cherish to engage in what we believe are open handed issues. God made me think about this question. Did we earn that? Did we earn the right to our freedom? to do what we wanted before the Lord? Or did Jesus give it to us? Because if we were given it, do we really have the right to hold on to it? See, Jesus said to his disciples, freely as you have received, so I freely give. That which I gave to you without cost, I, does, I call you to freely release for the sake of your brother and sister. And guys, I want to tell you, I know, I know what the sinful nature says to that. As you hear it in your I I like my freedom. I, I don't want to give up my freedom. Well, yeah, you know, Paul is, is very mature at this point, and uh, he, he's about to play the Jesus card, right? This is the card in the Christian ballgame of life that beats every other card you could ever play, right? He says this in verse 3, This is why you need to live this way. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Even Jesus, who was God incarnate, he didn't come to earth for a sensual holiday. He didn't arrive on a narcissistic cruise searching for the most insta-fabulous chill spot that would make all of his friends jealous when he posted it all over Instagram afterwards. It's not what he came to do. Jesus came to sacrifice himself. Jesus came to be murdered in our stead. He came to bear insults upon his holy, divine personage so that you and I could be made right with God. I, I, think, I, I think that might be what Paul is alluding to when he calls us to, to look to please our neighbors before we look to please ourselves. But in case we haven't gotten it yet, he kind of continues. He says, not just the fact that Jesus' incarnation should motivate us to live this way. I mean, it really kind of should be enough for us. But if if you need a little more, well, let me indulge you. It's also what the Scriptures teach. He says, if you go to the Scriptures, if you look at the whole story of God in history, they have been written in order to teach us that if we are open, if we would open ourselves to what the truth of the Scriptures, they will teach us to live like this. They will teach us that to follow God is to love others, to be selfless with what God has given to us. But then that's kind of the, the negative point that he makes. That's kind of like the, you know, he tries to to, to coerce us or to show us that the scriptures point us in this way, but then he also makes a point of encouragement. He says, if you embrace this way of life, if you do your best to emulate Jesus, to relinquish your freedom for the sake of your brother, you will find that the scriptures are a place of encouragement for you. That, that the scriptures will teach you obedience because and endurance because actually sometimes this is not easy. Actually, sometimes we need to discipline our body and bring it into alignment with the truth of God because our, our sinfulness desires to rule. And if, we, and if we search God and if we press into the Scriptures, we will find that by His Spirit, He will cause the Scriptures to become a place of life for us, a place of strength and, and encouragement and hope. And God's Word becomes indispensable for us when we seek to live as Jesus calls us to. Friends, I cannot... I really, really cannot place a high enough value on the transformative power of Scripture. If you will come to God's Word with a humble and teachable heart, and you will sit under it, and you will say, God, what are you actually saying? What does this mean for me? And you allow the Spirit of God to bring that Word to life in you. He will begin to mold and shape you to be like His Son. That's our first That's our first call, to live for unity, that we would bear with, that we would accommodate ourselves and our freedoms to the sincere beliefs of our weaker brothers and sisters. And I use that in inverted commas. Let me ask you this question. What happens in you when someone else's weakness impinges on your freedom? Have you ever encountered that? Do you have the courage, the strength to bear with them? A little while ago, this became very real for me. There was a hobby that I enjoyed in my life and had enjoyed for a very long time. It was a hobby that I had spent thousands and thousands of rands in. I was heavily invested. It was a hobby that I spent time in at least once, sometimes twice or more a week. And one day, a friend of mine, who I value and honor, came to me and said, Brad, this thing that you're engaged in, I'm concerned about it. I don't know that it's godly. And I had to wrestle with this thing. I had to to ask the question, is this thing that I'm doing, is it genuinely okay before the Lord? Or is it not? And even if I think it's okay, the fact that it so causes a problem for my my friend who I love and who had said to me, Brad, I, I don't know that I can minister alongside you if I know that this is something that you continue to carry in your life. Could I insist on what I thought was my freedom in God to continue in it if it was going to prevent us from operating in ministry together? You need to know this wasn't an easy decision for me. It wasn't like, oh, Lord, this is, it's so simple. This was decades of my life that I'd been a part of this thing. It was thousands and thousands of rand. It was friendship circles. People were involved. And I had to weigh it up, and I had to say, what is God's call in this thing? And first I had to ask the very real question, have I erred? Have I been mistaken in what I thought was my freedom, and I've engaged in this thing, and actually maybe it was something that was offensive to God, and I just had not seen it? And I had to wrestle with that before the Lord. And I want to let you know, I spoke to many people. I got advice from others who thought differently to me. I took that advice seriously. I processed it before the Lord. I came out at the end of the day and I thought, you know what? Maybe I have erred in some areas. Maybe this thing isn't as, as good for me or I don't have as much freedom to engage in it as I thought I did. But the thing for me that, that turned the scales was that even if I was right, it didn't matter. It didn't matter anymore. Because I can't allow what God had given me in my even in my own mind the freedom to pursue to hinder the unity of his body. And I had to let it go. And I don't say that as a boast, because I really this is not about me, but this is just about grappling with the reality of this thing. And I want to encourage you, if you encounter a question where something in your lifestyle that you feel the freedom to do in the Lord causes a problem to your brother or sister in the Lord, that prevents them from coming alongside you, from working together, for pressing together for the kingdom of God, should you really be fighting for it? Or isn't it more blessed to just release it and create unity between the two of you? Let's leave that over there for a moment. Let's have a look at Paul's second imperative. Perhaps he'll add a little bit of flavor to our thinking. Here's the second one. He says, I want you to accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order that you would bring praise to God. And this, I want you to notice it's, it's to one another, right? This command is issued to both those who thought they were, who are strong and maybe are strong and those who, who are weak, Paul says, both the strong and the weak are involved in this. And I want you to accept one another. I want you to love one another. I want you to welcome one another in the same way that Jesus has welcomed you. You know how you were in the kingdom of darkness and Jesus came for you and he welcomed you into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of God, and he brought about freedom and joy in your heart? In the same way that Jesus welcomes you, Paul says, I want you to welcome one another. Because when you do this, You bring praise to God. God receives glory because His people are loving one another as He has loved them. So this imperative flows straight out of the first. And the word that we have as accept comes comes from the Greek, and it, it means to literally grant others access to your heart. Needs to invite them in to the depth of your heart, to not hold them at a distance because you've got a theological disagreement with them, but to invite them right in, to warmly embrace one another despite the fact that you have this theological disagreement, and to do it freely, and to do it with joy, and not begrudgingly, and not with bitterness, because Jesus didn't welcome you into his kingdom begrudgingly and with bitterness. Again, Paul wants to... To help us understand why we need to act in this way, why why should we be so outrageous and so selfless in the way in which we live? Well, once again, it's about Jesus. Right? Once again, it's the, the one card that beats all the other cards. That's how Jesus responded to us. And so, if you if you remember, if you have a look in your in your Bibles, you'll notice in the next couple of verses, Paul does something that's maybe it seems a little bit strange because he begins to speak about the way in which Jesus fulfilled God's promise to the Jewish people. All right, when he uses the word patriarchs, he's talking about the Jewish fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right. And then about how Jesus fulfills God's promise that the Gentiles would come and worship God as well. And you might wonder, that doesn't seem overly relevant to this particular situation that we're discussing at the moment. In fact, it seems quite reminiscent of Romans 9 to 11. But when you see... What Paul is saying in light of the situation that existed in Rome at the time, I think this reasoning becomes so powerful. Because remember, these divisions that Paul's class as the strong and the weak, they probably fall largely along Jewish and Gentile lines. And so what Paul does here is, is to ground his call to love one another and to accept one another in the initiating purposes of God. He says, friends, as you look around you into this church that is your church, this brotherhood and sisterhood of of men and women who love the Lord and are following Him together, you need to know that God built this church, that God called each and every person here to be a part of this church from whatever background they came from, and He called them to be His people. And in fact, you need to know that it has always been God's intention that that diversity would exist in your church. He called them and he spoke to his prophets long before Jesus came that through Christ would be the fulfillment of the promise that the Gentiles would worship God as well. And so if God has gone out of his way to bring all of these people together from both the Jewish and the Gentile nations, if he's accepted them and welcomed them into his salvation, if this has always been his intention, and that's what the scripture is there to show us clearly, then who are we? To maintain divisions in the church in the name of freedom—that's his question. Here's the thing: this is this is this is a crux moment. When we disagree over a matter of conscience and not an absolute truth of God, we cannot, we cannot, we must not lose the unity of the church in order to hold our ground. We cannot allow ourselves to polarize the church into camps of us and them. We cannot look down on someone who believes differently to us on this matter of conscience. But we must love one another, accept one another, welcome and value one another as a part of the people of God that God has brought us together to be. That's living for unity. That's the freedom we all have. We all have in this. And one of the things God has been showing me in this is it is a blessing to release a freedom that you have to honor your brother or sister in the Lord. That's actually a blessing. It's something you can do to improve their walk with God. That's our call as God's children. All right, let's bring, let's bring this all together. I want to close by inviting us to respond to what Paul's been teaching and what Paul's been writing to the Roman church. And maybe as I do this, if I could ask James and the team to come and join, us, join me on the stage. I think there are a couple of things that we need to do, and some of them are things that we can do together here tonight, and some of them are going to be things that I want to encourage you to do when you go home. Right, but here's the first one, and this is probably the big one. This is a really big one. We need to encounter our own selfishness. I want to invite God, and we're going to do this in a moment, to come by the Spirit and to search the fullness of our beings and to help us recognize where selfishness lives in us. Because if we can't even see the selfishness that's in our heart, then we don't even know how it's going to begin to play out as we're with other people. And so we're going to stop now. We're going to say, God, come by your spirit and just show us. Show us, Lord, where we're, we're actually too concerned about being right and about holding on to something that we just want to have rather than choosing to freely release it to love those around us. And so I want to invite you, why don't you close your eyes with me now, and we're just going to ask God to come by His spirit and begin to speak to us. Holy Spirit, you search out the depths of God and make them known to us. Lord, you know every hair on our head, every day of our life is written in your book before we were even born. And God, I want to pray for us, as we begin to move towards unity together tonight, I want to pray for us that where we haven't seen some, some of the selfishness that exists in our hearts, and Lord, we're all on a journey with this. We're all on a journey. Some of us have, have come further along than others, but God, where there is selfishness in our hearts that might, at a later stage, become a block to the unity of your people, Holy Spirit, won't you just begin to show that to us now? There is something we believe, something we're holding on to. Just help us to see our selfishness, Lord. And help us to release our selfishness to you. And to instead of holding on to this thing as a right, to say, God, I'm willing to hold this with an open hand. And as long as you give me grace, I can enjoy this freedom. But Lord, if it's something I need to let go of, because I know right now that it's affecting another brother or sister, God, help me deal with my own heart to begin to let that go to you. is more important than our right to be right. Secondly, when you go home this evening and you go back to your your homes this week, I want to invite you to immerse yourself in God's Word. Immerse yourself in the Scripture in the inspired, divine Word of God. Because as you do that, as you allow God to, to speak to you, into you through His Word, He will mold you, and He will shape you, and He will speak to you and make you more and more like Him. It's through the Scriptures that the Spirit teaches us to endure hardship, that He moves in our hearts, that He makes us adaptable and malleable to God. It's in the scriptures that we find hope and encouragement for the journey. Because God never told us it was going to be easy. And thirdly, and this is something I want us to do together tonight, is that we need a trust in God. We need God to work in us by the Spirit to to remove our selfishness. And to grow in us a love for others. And so I thought, and as I was preparing for tonight, I thought it would be remiss of me to speak about unity. Without us beginning to do something in, in, a, in the physical that is a representation of our desire to be unified together. And so we're going to do something a little different tonight. And I, and I hope that you uh, can join me in doing that. But I want you to, to get into little circles with the people that are around you. Try and find maybe up to six people. Don't make, don't make them big circles, little groups. And if you're a regular here at Connect and there's someone around you that you don't know, why don't you take the first step and invite them to be a part of your little circle? And as you as you're in that circle, won't you pray together? That God would begin to build this desire for unity in your hearts, in our hearts. That He would begin to show us the selfishness that's in our hearts and give us the grace to release it to Him. And just take some time to invite the Spirit to come and to move amongst you and to shape us and to make us more like Jesus. Once you've taken some time to do that, we've got communion available tonight. And and I would love us to take communion together as little groups. This communion is something we do to remember what Jesus did for us. Jesus says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. To proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul has told us that it's because of what Jesus has done for us that we're to act like him towards one another. So once we've prayed together with one another, maybe two of you can go to the table and you can collect some bread for your little group and and some drinks for your group. And you can bring it back and together, you can just thank Jesus for what he's done for you. This is something that all of you who are Christians are free to do. Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Come and do that. Come and do it with a humble heart before him. Let's thank God for what he's done for us. And then once we've done that together, then we're going to stand and we're going to worship Him together. And we're going to be united in one heart and with one mind to love the Lord our God and to honor Him and to praise Him, to thank Him for what He's doing in us. Does that make sense? Okay. So at this point, you can begin to get up, shuffle around, move your chairs, make little circles, and begin to pray. Maybe you need to introduce yourself to the people around you. If everyone doesn't know everyone, just do that quickly. And then let's begin to pray together. Let's ask God to be at work amongst us.